Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit another takeaway message of the day. So I'm going to talk a little bit about breathing and how I think that has helped me in these moments of stress and how uh, I've been meditating quite a bit, uh, quite a bit is uh, 60 minutes a day for the last, uh, I think it's now over 75 days, you know, and, and missed some days in and out. <clears throat> uh, but what I've been noticing is my, the impact on my mood and how that's helped. And I decided to jump all in. And I think I've been doing meditation for a while and it's, it's really helped me deal with the stresses of, uh, you know, being locked down and, and work and all that stuff. And I, I just think at you, we were talking earlier about how breathing is such a big part of uh, performance and it doesn't really get coached or taught to anybody how to basically hold yourself in those critical moments, you know, big meetings, uh, big games, how do you handle yourself? And I think there's a lot of talk around the psychological state of, you know, just relax and, you know, all of that stuff. But I don't think there's been a lot of good coaching around that. And it's, it's a difficult topic. And a lot of times you don't really know what you're doing. You're just in the moment. Uh, so it's just, how do you do that? And so for me, uh, the last, you know, one of my my things that I've been focusing on is to try to become more aware. And that's really why I dove into meditation uh, a little bit more specifically. And I've noticed, you know, changes in my breathing uh, impacts in meetings that are more important and just a better, you know, a different overall experience in daily life. So that's been, it's been good. And I think that commitment was a good step in the right direction for me. Um, so that it's been, that's kind of, I think a takeaway for is just to, you know, use the time that I found it very beneficial to just use the time that I have, um, for something and, and not, uh, wake up and stare at my phone in the middle of the morning. So. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, we're obviously in the midst of a respiratory virus. So interesting that you bring up the importance of breathing and, and, uh, and how it relates to performance. Um, because I thought about instances um, in my uh, young kind of athletic career where we were in moments of, you know, like a lot of stress or whatever, you know, it's the, the end of the, whether or not you're a clutch person, right? Are you, are you somebody who's getting yelled at and screamed at by your coach, which, you know, nobody's going to perform well when the coach is yelling at you, like trying to impart upon the urgency of the situation. It's like everybody understands the urgency of the situation as a coach yelling and screaming to try and further communicate the importance of something is really not helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that um, that sort of, like, uh, I, I don't know where we thought giving that type of advice is helpful, but it's just so not. And like, here's the other one. So um, my um, friends and I went to a cabin last weekend. 
we, you know, respected each other's bubbles and pretty much all of us work uh, remotely. So we were not super concerned about coronavirus. And then Sunday night, one of the girls started exhibiting symptoms. So um, everybody, you know, I went and got a test. My wife got a test. A couple of the other people in the group got a test. My wife was negative, but mine was positive. And then some other people who were in the group had a positive test. So I tested positive. And um, my course of the coronavirus has been extraordinarily mild, like almost imperceptible. The only thing that I can even tell that's different about me is like a slight nasal congestion. And it's not even like the crud, like a cough. It's more like my nose is just a little bit inflamed and it's that's an that's another conversation but the um, thing I want to talk about is my wife made a social media post which I'm still kind of salty about because posting your medical stuff online is is something that I think you just have to be thoughtful about and so um, she posts about how like you know this occurs um, somebody tested positive she tested negative i tested positive i immediately left and quarantined myself so she's alone i haven't seen her in a while and all of the people on social media have been responding like oh make sure you're quarantining and these are the symptoms to look out for and you know maybe you should get another test and it's like why in god's green earth are you telling her this because obviously she knows all of this stuff None of it. All the physicians of the world that they're 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 telling her what to do. (laughs) Exactly. All of these friends on social media who are tossing their two cents in about like what is the appropriate course of action. Oh, there's a lot of false negatives, so you should go back and get another test. It's like obviously she knows that. Nothing that anybody has told her from that post has led to anything of value. And it's so odd that um what we are, what we often do in these situations when people express, you know, like their inability to do something or their struggle with something. And it's, it's related to like the coaching, the person in a pressure situation, that coach who was like, this is a really important shot is not going to help the situation. Mm-hmm. The player already knows it's an important shot. That's not what they need in that moment. And it's the same sort of response that, my wife got from the people who were responding to this coronavirus post like you should go get tested again you should drink fluids look at vitamin c it's like yeah i mean you'd have to be an absolute idiot to think that anything that you're telling me right now is new information and it just kind of what it does is it shows that people want to reach out and be supportive and connect but they there there are a few people who know how to do that well really mm-hmm. yep and it's so hard. It's so hard to take yourself out of that state of being like, oh, there's a there's a there's a crisis. I'm going to acknowledge there's a crisis by acknowledging there's a crisis as opposed to like bringing that different energy to the situation. And you mm-hmm. know, it relates to your meditation and performance overall, because I feel like you get better at that the more you kind of get in tune with, you know, your awareness, your breathing, things like that. And it just has been kind of spat in my face recently about how um, how kind of out to lunch a lot of people are when it comes to providing that sort of um, 
support to somebody. Oh yeah. Well, it's really difficult to know what to do in those situations too. You know, and I think we're young. We don't have a lot of life experience too. And you know, it's similar. And I, I compare that to, you know, when somebody there, somebody in their family dies or something tragic happens, it's really difficult to know how to respond. You know, you don't know what they want and you want to give advice and you know that, you know, this person is hurting and it's, it's really hard to navigate that. And, you know, it's hard to put yourself in that other person's shoes and think about what are they going to want from me and what response is going to be the best. And, you know, talking about coaches, I remember the best coaches that I had ever had left me the F alone in these moments, you know, they did not try to, you know, put their anxiety onto me and their worry and their emotional state of this is a big moment. Just like you said, I mean, you're playing the game, you know, exactly that this is a big moment. And, you know, there's just so many areas of life that this comes up and it's just such a good learning experience on how do you respond, you know, from your perspective, what, what has been helpful for you? Cause you've, you know, it's kind of a weird situation to be in. What do you think is a helpful response, you know, for some of these, you know, for somebody to learn, cause it's, it's really hard to know what to even do. Um, with somebody in that situation. Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, and I don't have a really good example of something that's been supportive thus far. Uh, I mean, except probably when you came and dropped some food off, you know, but that's, there, there's also like a love language thing component to it where um, certain people want to feel audible support. Certain people want to feel, you know, acts of service or gifts or whatever, you know, so different people have different kind of ways of, of wanting to be supported. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and as I was thinking about, you know, the varying different situations in terms of, um, my situation with, uh, with coronavirus or, um, stronger, I was, or like a more strong kind of idea was me thinking about a recent friend of ours who had a death in the family and how, um, I have not had a significant death in the family like he experienced. So there, you know, I was very unable to provide any sort of context or any sort of insight mm-hmm. at all. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then I, I was kind of thinking to the coaching thing too. And I was always thinking that like leading with empathy is typically the most effective way at avoiding that overstep of like assumption in terms of I'm, I'm assuming that this information is going to be of value to you because I think it's of value to me, mm-hmm. which, which is really rarely the case, I would imagine. So um, in whatever capacity that ends up being leading with empathy as, as the initial kind of like opener, it doesn't necessarily mean all you have to do is be like, oh, that must be so hard for you. I'm so sorry. You know, that's like a type of empathy that doesn't really I, and can seem disingenuous if people are just that level. But in terms yep. of the opener, um, I feel like that's a pretty solid kind of tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, and even 
any, I, I feel like I could approach any situation. There are a couple situations at work right now where, you know, leading with empathy is, is absolutely the best thing to do. Um, so that, that's the only idea that comes to my mind. Yeah. And that's a great <clears throat> message. And it rings true to, you know, like every situation is going to be different and every person needs to. So you're going to have to basically figure it out when you're in the situation and, you know, adjust, like you said, to the different needs of that person, you know, and, and, uh, the book five love languages is a good one to understand how people receive, receive love and, and, uh, you know, what they see as care, you know, giving them care, what they, what they hear. Um, cause you know, certain people, you give them tons of compliments and they get uncomfortable, you know, and that's just a way of being. So it's really difficult to navigate. And I was, um, listening to a book, which is by Robert Greene. It's called the laws of human nature. And he was talking about influence and he compared, uh, the early life of Lyndon Johnson, uh, the, one of the presidents, you know, a JFK VP to, uh, how he got in power. So he said early in his life before he was 40, very focused on, uh, influencing people with his words, with his actions, with his, you know, being the macho man, being very smart. And he quickly learned when he was around 40 and in government, that that is not how you influence people. It is to be empathetic, to listen, to understand their viewpoints. It's to confirm their self-identity. You know, if somebody believes a certain thing, you uh, can agree with them and stay fairly neutral. Uh, And it's um, something that'll win you a lot more, a lot like it'll, you win a lot more, more battles that way. And it's really hard. Behavior change is really a difficult part of life and changing other people. And we all want to influence others and, you know, reinforce our, the way we live so that we feel like we're doing it right. Cause it's, you know, just such a blank slate out there. It's hard to know if we're trending the right direction or not. So there's just a whole host of, you know, issues we're dealing with on a personal level. And I think that empathetic is a a good way to open up. And, and I know that the thing that's been nice is there's a lot more people and a lot of literature and leadership and, you know, talking about empathy. And so I think that's a good, you know, that's probably the better takeaway message of the day. Um, But it's, it's helped, I think, to hear other leaders that are more powerful and influential that talk about this is actually how you behave and long form podcasting has been good to kind of understand really how people are rather than these sound bites that you hear on CNBC or, you know, doctored articles that get written by press secretaries or something. So it's, it's been helpful to, to see and to meet people and see how they, they think and how they want to influence because it's just a it's a complicated world out there and we all want to be you know thinking that we're going the right direction so it's just really an interesting topic well the um so i multiple different chords there uh first that came to my mind is so this isolate this social media instance where people are like throwing their ideas back to my wife about how to you know better manage her situation right you know this is what people are doing they're like oh you should do this 
And um, the medium itself being social media, text messaging, asynchronous communication really is a makes being makes leading with empathy extremely hard because what are you going to do in a statement? Be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. If you need me, Mm -hmm. Um, that must be challenging for you. Uh, Thinking of you, those are nice things to say, but what they don't do in modern communication settings is lead to consistent conversation Mm -hmm. because, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I'm just guessing that um, it almost feels slightly burdensome to some people to have to further then explain themselves beyond what they've already tried. Because what that message does is it just, you're communicating to somebody that I'm trying to be empathetic for you and whatever. And in a conversation that flows really well, because then somebody's typically always going to just say back like, oh, you know, I appreciate that. This is what's been going on. And then they will typically start to expound on what they're experiencing. Like I've seen that all the time, Mm -hmm. but in social, in a, in a asynchronous communication, um, I, I think people are less likely to do that because it doesn't flow. They have to then like do something, which, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Because you're, you're not really setting them up for like the next phase of the conversation, which if anybody has ever tried to um, date a girl or a date, a boy that has their conversation begin on text, you know that you not only have to have the appropriate response you also have to have the volley back to the other side. That is interestingly enough that they're willing to invest energy in throwing it, you know, hitting it back over the, over the wall. And I, so that, that whole like asynchronous, you know, social media post response where you're trying to lead with empathy, uh, I think is a real challenge to do. So yeah, sure. You can lead with empathy, empathy, but then, you know, ask whatever, um, question you can do that doesn't feel burdensome for the person to have to further explain what they're going through. I, I, I don't know how to do that, but I, I do see uh, inclin like I do see that kind of um, the erosion of the ability to be effective with empathy when you're doing kind of messaging conversations, particularly, I mean, dating is a great example when you're like, this is, this is why people on Tinder nowadays have these, absurd opening lines as like a way of trying to jar their other partners into the desire to respond because being like, Hey, you know, I'm leading with empathy. Um, I don't know. It, it's I mean, not yeah. What's the empathetic question you ask in dating? You know, it's like, how are you? I mean, you know, they oh, get... it must be hard <laughs> to have big boobs like that because your back hurts. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I don't know. I know it's like, you know, you leading with a compliment is one thing, but then compliments get kind of cheap over asynchronous communication, you know, like a true genuine compliment. But if you don't have a lot to work with, you know, you have a picture and then some doctor bio, you know, a bio that says, I like to spend time with my family and, you know, I love the summer. It's like, what do you have there? God (laughs) is great. I love to travel. Coffee is my drug. Yeah. (laughs) 
what in, you, you know, in, there? I'm in a big reality, fan of the office. <laughs> yeah, like I, exactly. It's like in it's really hard to open somebody up because who knows? Somebody could be like, you know, we know some people like I roast coffee. And so that's like something I would be interested in talking about. But like 98% of the people talk about coffee that they like it just because it's like it's a different maybe but that's not one of something they truly like so it's like you don't know the person you don't know what question will be be open and yeah i think well let's see coffee is an expression of status oh for sure for sure and you know i was talking about this yesterday with my wife which was how starbucks did just an amazing job of putting that coffee cup into a status symbol Mm -hmm. and how that white cup walking in with a white cup meant you're, you know, you're treating yourself, you're, you have value. You're showing up at school with that white cup, like, Oh, wow. You know, you're, you're really doing something. You're really part of the, you're sophisticated, which went completely over my head when I was in high school, (laughs) I didn't drink, start drinking coffee till two years out of two years out of college. But it was like that definitely was a status symbol. And I remember people who were very status aware at school were doing that, you know, and they were talking about going and getting their Frappuccino, you know, drink. And Starbucks did an amazing job of inserting that into our culture. And, you know, look at how valuable the company is. Uh, and so you're totally right about how coffee has become a status symbol. And I think companies do a really good job of identifying this and, you know, inserting it into the, into the culture and how do they navigate it? And there's some really smart people with that, but then again, yeah. it comes, it becomes then, you know, a, a, a Twitter bio, I love coffee. And now you're, you know, status signaling. Yeah, I've been trying to come to terms with that because so much of what occurs on social media, particularly Instagram, is status assertion. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, it's always like, I'm exerting, I'm I'm demonstrating my status right now. This is my level of status. And it just, and I don't know how to avoid that because I'm, I'm at risk of doing it. You know, I'm only share, my life is extraordinarily boring from Monday to Friday, like, yeah, I can show you me sitting at my desk for 10 hours a day and going to the gym, but who really cares about that? Right. So, and the only thing that's of interest is when I do these more, you know, like traveling or whatever, and it's hard to, it, so social media, you know, like I said, just glosses over these kind of ways to genuinely connect with each other, which I guess we've, you know, talked about ad nauseum on the podcast, but um, well, it's still something when when you during the coronavirus and we it's really hard to connect with people you know and we're starting to say like oh you know video chatting is just so great it allows us but in reality it's like you it, it isn't it doesn't have near the impact uh i think on your mental health as going and seeing somebody and like just seeing their face for 20 minutes you know you're there's just a lot more signals you get you feel closer you know, you can feel the emotion, the energy from somebody. And I think you and I talked about this is it's really hard to maintain friendships right now. Very hard. Mm-hmm. And the communication has become, you know, less and less. And I was 
talking to a friend the other day and we stayed on the phone for a really long time because it's like we haven't been able to really get deep into a conversation um because it's just it just it's just a different a different way of living right now and um i think that's having some pretty pretty severe effects on my own personal mental health and i talk about that a lot with my with my wife is just we have each other and that is really great we're such a social species that we want to go talk to our neighbors and you know feel like we're a part of a community and belong somewhere and it just it's really complicating that ability um you know and we can there's a whole other thread to pull on with you know the government's impact and locking everything down and is that really the the answer and it's you know there are definitely some impacts that i can feel in myself and i consider myself very lucky for how we've been able to navigate navigate the last year yeah and i mean to have the disease right now or at least have you know the junior varsity version of the disease because my response is so mild that i don't, I don't even know what is going on here so um it's trouble it's puzzling in that regard um but it, it has brought me some interesting clarity in terms of being under quarantine for the last nine months roughly and um like the culmination of that activity occurring right now like me having the disease mm -hmm. i have and, and yeah, so this is why we've been doing this it, it seems rather <laughs> absurd which is horrible because i understand that there's been so many other deaths and you know people have more severe reactions but um it does demonstrate like how um the blanket strategy may not have you know the blanket kind of lockdown strategy may not have been really intelligent you know i mean in a perfect world really you look at you know uh japan south korea taiwan companies or excuse me countries that have done um, terrifically well i think i read an article that said japan even though tokyo is the i think tokyo is the largest city in the world um it has like 19 million people or so um all of Japan had like 1200 deaths in the coronavirus. Now that's um, there's so much cultural stuff at play. Um, their healthcare system probably didn't get more money every time that somebody died from the virus. So they probably weren't like associating every single person who died for the last nine months to the disease. But um, so I'm just been kind of fascinated by like how they have not done a, hard lockdown strategy um the example they gave in this article was like uh their movie theaters are still open and they still have people go to movies and everybody wears masks and whatever and um you know i i feel like we could have done a more intelligent job with a more robust testing strategy and a better understanding of like how the disease was spread and yeah the whole anti-mask stuff does throw a, a wrench into it so i i understand no no strategy is perfect, but it does, it feels odd for me to have, to have the disease and be sitting here and kind of like, well, I'm either waiting for the other shoe to drop or um, like, this is it. It seemed, yeah, or this is it. And um, it seems odd. It seems odd that we would, um, that it would have this, this much of a punishing effect on such a large scale. It just seems yeah, I mean, kind yeah, of surreal been to me. 10 months of this. 
10 months of waiting, 10 months of being locked down, you know, the financial implications were taking on trillions of dollars worth of debt to pay for this strategy. Uh, Yeah, it really gets you to think. And on the other side of the coin, I've known people who have higher risk factors for the disease who have had very severe responses. So I don't want to cheapen that. I just think that like, you know, me, um, we probably could just could have done a more intelligent job of um, using perhaps a a scalpel as opposed to a hammer to treat the disease, you know, because it feels like kind of had a hammer approach all the time, which is, is typically like the American way. Like, like, why would you, you know, I mean, we're, we like pyramid, here you go. This is how you hammer. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, really getting specific. Yeah. And I think the, you know, just the, the, the work that I've done and the projects that I've worked on, when you take a blanket approach and say, this is the solution, what you realize quickly once you dig into it is it is extremely nuanced. And there are so many factors around what is causing the response, you know, what is causation, what is not, you know, how do people do really well? You know, one of the things that I think we're experiencing nowadays is the advent of data and how uh, we can measure things and the scientific method and how that progresses things a lot farther. And you're finding these solutions are becoming, you know, like uh, Tesla, one of the most valuable companies is just does electric cars. You know, they don't do cars or they don't do trucks right now. They have figured out how do you do cars with electricity and, you know, they're taking a more nuanced approach. And what I'm sensing is a shift in our direction away from these big blanket, like, Oh, you're sick. Go to the hospital. You know, like that's just the first response go to the ER. Well, now there's a lot more to that where it's like, well, you could go to the ER. You could also get another disease at the ER. So what are your symptoms? Well, maybe you should go here. And you know, it's like a lot of these, blanket solutions like up oh, we're just going to lock everything down you know we're just going to shut every every everybody can't do anything no businesses well we'll keep hospitals open well now they're struggling you know it's just like this this approach with the advent of how much information we now have thanks to the internet is um i think starting to to die down and you know the people that yeah. I think will be successful in the future are ones that embrace this change and start to say, look, here's the new world. How do we live in it? Uh, How do we govern differently? Maybe, you know, I hope, hopefully our, our, um, you know, our country decides that we can maybe govern a little differently, look at facts. And so, you know, that it's just, how do we continually progress and move on? I think is, uh, is going to be interesting because there's a lot of different stuff out there. Well, yeah, it's the um, transition to like the personalized life experience, you know, kind of similar to how precision medicine is becoming um, very popular. I was looking at Optum Ventures portfolio and they have tons of um, like personalized diagnostic tools where you're doing genetic tests or um, some sort of, you know, kind of like uh, personalized scan or approach, and then looking at biological markers in one individual, 
and using data from other people to, you know, suggest what, what the course might be for that person. But I think that that trend is occurring across life um, overall, you know, the, the precision sort of lived experience as we get better with manipulating data. Uh, so yeah, the, the, that's why, you know, this kind of one size fits all coronavirus approach has been something that um, I'm just, I'm experiencing firsthand and it just feels, feels kind of misaligned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's difficult. And, you know, I was talking to somebody about public health uh, a couple of weeks uh, for the last few weeks. And it was a physician that was saying, you know, in, in Africa, there are two different treatment styles to taking care of malnourished kids that they've been proven. You can go and try to fix every individual kid that is mistreated and, you know, spend a lot of time trying to save every single individual, or you can uh, go and treat and start doing education on washing your hands, um, you know, better, uh, better protocols around, uh, defecation and, you know, going to the bathroom and where do you go to the bathroom and do you, you know, keeping that away from Mm -hmm. your, you know, and how, like nursing, how do you deliver babies differently? Uh, so there, you know, there's different approaches to public health. And I think this is a good example of, you know, how do we think about, you know, and, and what he was saying was you can save one individual life and make an impact on maybe one or two people. But when you look at it, that's not a, using your resources efficiently, you know, and they made much bigger impacts, you know, in terms of like millions and hundreds of thousands of babies improving the death rate by doing the, the latter of the two strategies. And so the first strategy feels a little better for the physician. Cause it's like, I can see my impact. Um, and the second strategy, you know, he was saying there's a lot of physicians that have struggled with that, that approach. And, you know, it is extremely complicated and you know you worry about that one person and it just is that that is such a complicated public health conversation that i think we're no we will struggle with until the end of time (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it's yeah but we could have used more of that type of you know clean up your sanitation strategies for coronavirus i feel like is what you're kind of saying is it would have been nice to have greater insight into what those high value add activities would have been early on, like, you know, and, and be upfront about it too, as opposed to being um, like, it's a black box. Like we don't know anything. Like it would have been great to have some confidence in the institutions that were having these, um, you know, sanctions or, you know, whatever you want to call the uh, executive orders were uh, it'd be great to, you know, just be like, well, congregate, spaces congested spaces are are a bad idea so we're going to do things that limit people's activity in congested spaces i mean that was the approach that japan took is essentially the whole thing that the article said so mm-hmm. i think you're you're totally spot on there but um you bring up an interesting idea uh in this kind of like um new revolution in terms of personalized living. And it just made me think of the whole GameStop uh, saga that has been going on in the media this past two weeks. And it has been very fun to watch, to be honest, uh, from, from my armchair here, I feel pretty, I, I think it's, I think it's a remarkable watershed moment in our, um, in our kind of financial 
world where this is one of those unique opportunities where you're like seeing that the system is explicitly rigged against certain people. And when that becomes exploited, um, those in power get pretty snippy and they get pretty mad. And then you just realize like all of what you've been telling everybody has been kind of a lie from the get go. So like, let's just be honest about it. You know, it's, it's a fascinating example and it's, it's a bit refreshing because it shows that, uh, you know, people there, there truly is a, an ability to impact, uh, you know, and how you decide, how you decide to trade can have an impact on something. And when you find people that band together, you really can make an impact. And this has caused, you know, hedge funds claiming for regulation, which that's exactly opposite of what they normally say. Um, and the loopholes that are normally exploited are becoming, you know, put to a different usage. And I think one of the the key figures and, you know, most people can pr- have probably heard about what's going on. And it's basically a small group of, or not a small, but a, a group of more individual traders are deciding to prop up GameStop. Uh, and since they and learned other and other short sold stocks that were like on their last life was like AMC or yep, um, the theater company. Yep. yep. A lot of businesses that you would think are going to struggle during the virus. Um, these, these uh, traders, uh, the true Robin hoods have decided to come in and help by giving their money and, and trading, you know, every you know thousand dollars at a time and have been supporting these businesses and, day trader or trader hedge funds that have taken positions that say like, you know what, I'm guessing I'm going to buy your stock from you at a future date. And then, you know, it's going to be a certain time period. So I think one of the dates was uh, December 31st or or January 31st or January 28th, Uh, whatever the price is, then I'm going to pay it. And I think you're going to do really poorly. So this group of people has figured out when it's timed and have said, we're going to, stick with the stock and keep the price and not sell any of our stock. And now the stock has, the price has gone up dramatically. And so these, these hedge funds are losing billions of dollars and they really have no control or minimal control of it. And a company called Robinhood's right in the middle of it, an app, and they've limited trading, which is a very questionable move on a company that's name is Robinhood is limiting trading on by the, uh, the people that supposedly Robin Hood saved, which is the average Joe types like, like us here on the, on the podcast. Um, so it's really a fascinating thing and it shows what power people truly have. If they can mobilize and work together and do something, they can take down a few people that are in charge and it's scary. I think it's very scary for a lot of these investors. It's and very it's been- scary. Because what you have is, um, so this trading platform, Robinhood, is uh, supposed to be, you know, your every man's trading platform. What they did was they came in and they said, we're not going to allow, or we're not going to have fees for trading. Every other platform used to have a 7 to $10 fee associated with trading a stock, which is just retarded. But that was the way that it was done. 
And so Robinhood comes in and says, we're not going to have those fees. And then what do you know? Everybody else in the industry gets rid of those fees too. So now you can pretty much trade a stock on any platform for free. But Robinhood is app-based. They grew with, you know, 20-year-olds uh, are their main user base. You know, it, you're an everyday investor who's, instead of investing, you know, their money with, you know, some other Brokerage place, they're, or something, yeah, yeah. They're, they're playing with it themselves. And um, so what you have here is an enabling technology to reduce the amount, to increase people's freedom in the market. And then this is the first, uh, well, the first indicator of um, this like new um, source of capital in the market was probably um, what has been now dubbed meme trading. So like, um, which is what I think is going on with GameStop too. It's meme trading, but um, companies like Tesla, Apple, Google uh, have incredible um uh, I believe price per earnings ratios that are like never before ever seen. Uh, and so there's been a lot of people in the market who are like these kind of old guard people saying that, well, it's all these young, dumb kids who don't under, who don't actually do any stock um, analysis on like the fair value of the company. They just, they just buy on what they know. So they call it meme trading. So, you know, you see Tesla spike all the way up and all this stuff. And then, um, but this is so sure you've got maybe price inflation that has occurred because of this as like a precursor. But now what you what we're seeing is like a coordinated event that um, is enabled by a technology and, um, you know, supported by another social social platform, Reddit. And then, you know, just has caught this crazy wildfire uh, and um you've got your first movers who are on Reddit and then you've got your, you know, you're kind of crossing the chasm type people as this has become mainstream. And uh, this is a runaway, this is a runaway train. It appears um, there have been efforts by wall street to, you know, after hours trading to try and knock the, sp the price off and all this stuff. But um, it's, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a moment of true, um, it's, it's one of those like, uh, you know, the game has changed from now on. Uh, this yeah. will forever be known as like, you're not just going to be able to short companies that appear to have a poor economic outlook without considering the fact that, um, you know, there could be the unforeseen forces that you need to consider, like a crusade of, you know, a bunch of finance bros who decide to <laughs> toss their money at GameStop. I mean, I, I think it's hilarious. Uh, call it activist investing, you know? I mean, it is. I and it's what, it, what, what's they, they already have activist investing. I mean, you look at what Bill Ackman does. He goes, he, he goes online or goes to CNBC and says, this is such a terrible stock and markets change. And then he profits off those changes. So uh, it's it's no different in my mind. Uh, a group of people that are saying, "Look at let's do this together." Um, you know, it's just the 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 conversation definitely is: is this something that is good for the market or not? So can we eliminate it totally? But it's not fair to have a group of you know three or four people who have access to it in terms of these hedge funds, or is it a base? So it's just it's such a such a fun thing to um to see 
because it is turning this this trading on its head right now completely mm-hmm. turning its head on its or trading on its head and a lot of what i think we've all known about stock trading is it's speculation and at some level it's just gambling and there's you know there's definitely some truth and skill to it uh but you know in in today's world it's uh it's changing and so change is always interesting and when you're on the you know i think we like to to see change and to see things things move and it's just but it's more interesting and right now it's definitely a fun fun thing to pay attention to it is and uh i haven't been super tuned into the national um conversation about it in you know as far as what i've just chatted about here so i'm sure there will be some interesting developments that have occurred over the weekend and um you know who knows who knows where we'll end up with this yeah we we will not we will not and i think that's some of the you know that's some some of the interesting things is to see how it it uh to see if there's a real change because markets are starting to change and the coronavirus is is really impacting other markets so it's uh you know as as we all know the the way we know life is always going to continually change and mm-hmm. how are you how are we all going to respond to it are we going to try to acknowledge these these things these changes and make a change in our own life or are we going to not and deal with those consequences later and you know change takes a while but i do think there are some of these things that will stick and people that are in power in control are by definition not going to want to change because they you know they want it the way they have it and so it's been it's a great example of um also how when you try and fight something like this you actually fan the flames big time big time this wouldn't be nearly on the international scale if you hadn't had huge institutional investors coming out and condemning these activities what do you think uh even people we know have said like screw it i'm gonna go buy some stock you know kind of Mm -hmm. like i'm you know I'm jumping in now because now they know about it. They even have no idea about this. Um, yeah. So it is turning into uh, something more. And, you know, when we've been, I don't know, growing up, you learn pretty quickly, you know, when you start to give energy to something and fight it, it becomes something more where the, the best strategy in my mind to always winning some type of feud or letting it go is just kind of to eliminate it in terms of giving it no energy. That's the, the appropriate response, but giving it a negative charge will, but you know, that'll bring some type of energy towards it. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's really good. And, you know, we're the one thing that I think a lot of people are excited about, or it's, it's interesting is like the losers in this game aren't the average investor right now that I know of, you know, there could be some people, but uh, the people that are losing are, have a lot of money. So that's been some of the, the interesting part of this whole thing. That's not usually how it works. Yeah. That's, that's been a very welcomed kind of internet meme of, you know, saw the tweet of the person who said, let's not forget everybody losing money in this GameStop thing has multiple boats. So it was kind of funny. 
So that's going to be pretty tough to fight. Oh, uh, I know. When you it, and you know the the other thing that's been coming out is like when you get Elon Musk, AOC, and a lot of these other senators, Ted Cruz that are in the same boat. That doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. Supporting this this theory, that's um, uh, it's telling. It's telling. So. Yes. Well, that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week when we'll be back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room.